Hello, and welcome to the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, episode 4, Fire in the Hole. This episode, we're going to be looking at the time period between roughly 1 AD and 500 AD, as we continue our trundle through the history of chemical and biological weapons of warfare, having so far dodged poison arrows, drugged balls, and helibor-based refreshments. Now, Things start to get pretty crowded in world history as we move into this period. This is because, simply put, there are lots of civilizations doing lots of stuff, and they're writing most of it down. At the outset of this period, the Roman Empire was just emerging out of a series of civil wars, and remained a behemoth empire which stretched across the Mediterranean, Western Europe, as well as parts of Africa and Asia. The Han Dynasty in China was in the middle of its Golden Age, and days were numbered for the Indo-Greek kingdom which stretched from Greece across parts of Pakistan, India and Afghanistan. There were of course innumerable other peoples, city-states, steeftons and nomadic tribes doing their thing across the globe, often in sweet ignorance of each other. Now, in the previous episode we touched upon the rise of city-state empires, which were associated with standing militaries, distinctive military cultures and organisation, as well as bureaucracies to support them. All of this has left us with a wealth of evidence about the practice of warfare. It has also left us with evidence that chemical and biological warfare has been with us for a long time as a niche aspect of warfare. In this episode, we're going to do a short survey of the types of claims and evidence we have of biological and chemical warfare in this period, with a focus in particular on some of the larger civilizations. We will come to focus on the use of smoke in warfare in this period, which involves digging down into what could be the earliest case of chemical warfare for which we have archaeological evidence. As ever, it is just worth saying that this show would not be possible without the experts in this area who make the time to speak to me, to point out any elephant traps I'm about to walk into, and to send me numerous archaic documents. My background research for this episode has been greatly facilitated by Adrian Mayer, who has been kind enough to send me information which will appear in the new edition of her book, as well as the archaeologist Professor Simon James. Simon worked up the chemical warfare hypothesis discussed in the second part of the show, as part of an archaeological study he wrote over a decade ago. He kindly spoke to me at length about this work, and I left the conversation not only wanting to retrade as an archaeologist immediately, but also keen to make sure we can do today's story justice. And, as usual, you can of course find links to sources used in this episode, as well as other information, in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the show today. So let's start with a few general observations about this era. Reference to the use of toxins and poisons in warfare tend to be made only in passing, in the written records of the ancient world, appearing in the writings of doctors, military and political historians, as well as military tacticians. Now, there has been painstaking work to collate these various accounts, but there remains a healthy degree of scepticism among historians of contemporary chemical and biological warfare about the historical prevalence of these weapons. In this period, then, there is enough evidence across different peoples and places to suggest that certain nomadic peoples continued to use poison arrows in warfare during this period. Reference to poison arrow use by various peoples appears in Chinese, Indian, Roman and Greek sources in this period. However, what is less clear is the extent to which emerging city-state militaries used chemical and biological weapons in this era, 
it does seem reasonable to assume that at various times there were isolated cases of use of crude and essentially field-improvised weapon systems. Indeed, it is clear that there were little moral scruples about attacking water supplies of besieged cities or inventing other ways of making the lives of enemies miserable, including, for example, the use of acrid smoke. In saying this, many of the references to these weapons in ancient texts may very well have more to do with the need to spin a good yarn than a need for factual accuracy. For example, the ancient Roman strategist Frontinus, who at various times talks about drugging enemies and seems to spend a lot of time thinking about how to stop his own men inebriating themselves, suggests that leaving cattle but no firewood behind when retreating so that the enemy might gorge themselves on raw beef and do themselves a mischief is a sound strategy. I for one think this might be bull, but then I would never be cowed by the threat of state tatar. Another example, of course, are scorpion bombs. A single contemporary source written in around AD 198 claims defenders trapped in the besieged fortress of Hatra near modern-day Mosul, Iraq, repulsed Roman attackers by firing pots of various desert nasties over the walls. Candidates for the mix include scorpions, assassin bugs, wasps and beetles. The original Fab Four of the poison insect world. Yes, that was indeed a Beatles pun, and no, refunds are not offered. There are in fact numerous references to the use of stinging insects and other toxic animals as weapons in ancient mythological texts, natural histories and other commentaries. Again, we can't be sure of the extent to which they were used in reality, but there is certainly much more recent examples of attempts to weaponise creepy crawlies in our histories, something we will come back to in later episodes. So what did ancient people think about the idea of using such methods in warfare? It is tempting to claim that they were somehow marked out ethically back then as they are today. However, we must also be careful of Whig history in relation to the stigma against these weapon systems in the ancient world. Essentially, the further we get away from modern states, modern warfare and the contemporary international system, the more we have to squint to support claims about the ethical distinctiveness of these weapons as an aspect of warfare. Chemical and biological weapons are discussed in lots of different ways in available sources. Sometimes they seem to appear as idealised, powerful but essentially hypothetical weapon systems, such as the idea that plagues could be controlled and directed against enemies. Other times they are referred to as weapons of excess and deception, especially by those who have been on the receiving end. In addition, another really interesting source are early international agreements about the conduct of warfare, found for example in peace treaties. One of these agreements relates to the alleged use of poisoning discussed in the last episode during the siege of Karar in the 6th century BC. As you will recall, I have my doubts about the veracity of this tale of the use of hellebore to poison water supplies, as accounts I have come across don't start appearing till a hundred years after the fact. The myth of the poisoning of Karar, in my current understanding, is something which appears as an aspect of propaganda in later conflicts in the region a couple of centuries after the alleged incident supposedly happened. However, what is interesting is that this event, fact or fiction, seems to have informed later treaties in the region. With the alleged perpetrators of this incident, and we can probably assume other similar incidents, agreeing not to interfere with the water supplies of cities. In this episode, I want to focus in on a specific type of chemical weapon discussed in this era, specifically the use of smoke 
as a weapon to harass and asphyxiate. Now smoke of course has been used in several ways in warfare and is still used today. It has been used as a means of communication and to screen movements primarily and in modern conflicts a range of chemicals are used for this purpose. The use of smoke to harass, injure or kill combatants is today illegal in international law. However, as we will see in later episodes, certain smoke-generating systems, including those which are reliant on toxic agents such as white phosphorus, smoke grenades, while not designed to injure, can easily do so, especially when employed in enclosed spaces. In the ancient world, there is quite a bit of reference to the use of dust and various types of smoke for its toxic effects. This includes burning of bird feathers, the kicking up of dust by horses, and other ways of generating smoke. You see discussion in ancient Chinese texts, in Roman and Greek texts as well. It seems that a common use centres on conflicts which occur in contained spaces, such as cave systems. This is not surprising, considering that many of these agents, while dangerous, are nowhere near as toxic as their contemporary counterparts, and so only really function effectively where you have areas with restricted airflow. The issue of cloud concentrations is something we will return to at various points in this show, as it has been one of the most significant challenges facing would-be weaponeers. Today, however, we are going to stick like pitch to the ancient era and examine a case which may very well be the most ancient incident of the use of toxic clouds for which we have evidence. We turn then to the ancient ruins of Jura Europus, which lies in what is today Syria. This archaeological site has many claims to fame, most notably one of the best preserved pieces of synagogue art from this era, as well as one of the most significant collections of Roman arms and armour which belongs to a Roman garrison which were based there. The site also provides us unparalleled insights into the practice of tunnel warfare in this period, which was clearly a terrifying prospect then, as it would continue to be for later conflicts. The site was once referred to as the Pompeii of the desert, and for good reason. Buildings and artefacts lay buried and undisturbed following the fall of a city in around 256 AD. This was until a series of excavations in the late 19th and early 20th century. Excavations there have been interrupted time and time again by conflict. Indeed, the city was still offering up secrets up until the outbreak of the Syrian civil war in around 2011 a conflict which appears to have done further irrecoverable damage to the site. You can still see the site today on Google Maps, and it is well described on the Yale University Art Gallery website. This organisation holds many of the artefacts taken from the early 19th and 20th century excavations. The ancient fortified city of Druiropus is in eastern Syria, about 45 kilometres from the modern Iraqi border. The history of the fortified city is that of a military outpost. By the 2nd century AD, it was an important Roman military base which functioned initially as a means to project power into the region and later as Rome's fortunes began to change as a bulwark against advances in the region being made by the Persian Sasanians. The city appears to have been temporarily captured from the Romans in around 250 AD. However, the attackers clearly did not have the means to hold it, and so the Romans recaptured the fort. Once they had done this, they set about drastically improving the defences of the strategic outpost, in full expectation of future attempts to besiege the city. 
The original city walls stood somewhere around 10 metres tall. And against the inside of this wall, defenders built a huge sloped bank made of rubble, earth and general detritus. So substantial was this embankment that entire streets and buildings were subsumed within it. This slope bank would have provided the defenders easy access to high firing positions along the wall and the 26 towers dotted along it. The defenders also reinforced the external face of the wall with much steeper earth banks. This was to protect it from undermining, which was a known strategy at this time. The besiegers arrived in 264 AD. They would have set up camp outside the range of the city's towers, but sat as they were on a long plain would have been continually visible to the defenders inside. The attackers, in keeping with siege tactics at the time, would have surveyed the area and begun to build tunnels, the idea being that they could build a mine under the external curtain wall which would be propped up with wood. At the point of choosing, they could then set a large fire in these tunnels, which would be fed by various accelerants such as sulphur and pitch, and fanned with bellows. This would lead to the tunnel collapse, which would also bring down the curtain wall. The defenders would have expected this, and dug counter-tunnels from the inside, designed to intercept, interrupt and destroy the attackers' tunnels. It would have been the only option available to them as the attackers naturally started their tunnels well out of range of the walls and the towers. Those on the walls would have had to watch miners go to work every day, as they gradually built up a huge spoil pile, which would have been the evidence of the progress which has been made by the attackers to undermine the city's defences. Our story focuses on a mine and countermine built just beside Tower 19, not far from the city's main gatehouse. An archaeological excavation discovered a Sasanian approach tunnel, which had been dug and was directed towards the tower. The Romans noticed this and began digging their own defensive counter-tunnel along the line of attack they assumed the Sasanians were taking. The race then was on, and as it happened, the Sasanians made it to the sweet spot just below the city walls and started excavating a cavity before the Romans reached them. Just to paint a picture in your mind's eye then, assuming we have the wall in the middle, we have the defenders tunnelling in and under from the left. And we have the attackers tunnelling in and under from the right. The attackers have the upper hand as they have reached the area under the wall. At this point, they have dug slightly upwards and across in order to get at the softer materials under the walls. And they have begun to excavate a cavity which they would have wanted to ensure was long enough so that the full thickness of the wall was undermined. This cavity then is where the Sustanians are digging. They would have been taking wood props in and rocks, earth and stone out, all the while listening out for evidence of any counter-tunnelling from the enemy. So far so good. The question is then, how on earth did we go from this situation to the situation which greeted archaeologists when they discovered these tunnels. They found a pile of remains of around 20 Roman soldiers interred at the end of their own tunnel and they had apparently been placed there from the inside. Well, the explanation for this appears to centre on the moment the Romans broke through into the tunnel that the Sasanians were still excavating. 
It was archaeologists in the early 20th century that made the original grim discovery of a tightly packed stack of around 20 Roman dead in their own defensive tunnel. They found the bodies, only lightly armed and armoured, many without shields, stacked in one tunnel, apparently with the shields they had piled up on top of them. One hypothesis is that these soldiers were purposely killed with toxic smoke, and the circumstantial case for this is now laid out in a little more detail. The stack of bodies confounded those at the site as well as archaeologists who have looked at the case since. The evidence at the site suggests that these soldiers were not moved from elsewhere and died within the tunnel system. How then did so many of the city's defenders perish in such a small space? The tunnel is not large enough for fighting. It seems implausible then that hand-to-hand -hand combat could have been the cause of death of so many men. From here then we must look for alternatives for what could have happened. Those familiar with the case suggest asphyxiation, perhaps as a result of panic trampling, fire or smoke. And it is this last explanation which Simon James has found most compelling in his examination of the case. He suggests that after the Roman breakthrough into the Sasanian tunnel, the Sasanians retreated and the group of Roman soldiers then piled in in order to hold the tunnel immediately below the wall and prevent it from being fired. At this point then, they would have been sat in a small wood-propped cavity looking down into the attacker's access tunnel. It would have been easy for the Romans to hold off attackers, attempting to come through that hole while they worked out how to backfill the excavation. Now this would have been incredibly frustrating for the Sasanians. They would have spent weeks digging the cavity under the city walls and would have been eager to find a way of recapturing it before the Romans backfilled it. It appears at this point they may have had a realisation. The tunnel system was now connected. This meant that a prevailing westerly breeze entering in from the attacking side could move through the tunnel system and out the defender's access tunnel and into the city. This then offered the possibility of using smoke to either flush out or overcome the defenders. This would enable the Sasanians to recapture the cavity they had been working on, secure it, complete it and fire it. Archaeologists found evidence of a small fire along with sulphur crystals at the end of the Sasanian access tunnel, which supports the idea that the Sasanians resorted to this ploy to clear out the Romans. Any smoke produced at the point this fire was set would have bellowed up into the cavity and on out of the Roman access tunnel. It is not unreasonable to suggest that Sasanians would have known how to quickly generate smoke in situations like this. The accelerants they commonly use to make fire, most notably sulphur, also produce toxic fumes when burned. This smoke would have quickly overcome the Roman soldiers trying to hold the half-completed Sasanian tunnel. They would have found it very difficult in this scenario to make a hasty escape. In this scenario, dead and dying Romans found in the tunnel would have been pushed out of the cavity and used as a makeshift wall to block the Romans from counter-attacking. This wall was then barricaded and further reinforced with other materials. 
The Sasanians then decided to completely collapse the Roman countermine. They set a larger fire, ignited it, and it brought the tunnel down over the pile of Roman bodies. It also appears as if the Sasanian that lit this fire was overcome by the smoke and became trapped, as their body was found years later. This sacrifice then allowed the Sasanians to continue excavating the cavity in order to ensure that it was long enough to undermine the entire curtain wall. As it happens, we can be certain they finished the job, as they did indeed start a much larger fire in the cavity once it was completed. The cavity collapsed, but did not achieve the intended effect. Perhaps a defensive rampart had helped hold the wall in place. Ironically, this would all matter little in the context of the broader siege. The city would indeed fall, but by less clandestine means. It is certainly a compelling story. I'm still not sure if I'm convinced by all this, and it is my show, so I'm saying it is fine to sit on the fence on this one. But the study that this hypothesised chain of events is based on really is a fantastic example of how archaeology and forensics can be combined. More generally, reading around this paper has reasserted to me that it is very likely that toxic smoke has been used at various times throughout history as an improvised weapon. However, its usefulness was very much confined to certain types of conflict, uh, particularly those which centred on things like tunnel warfare. And that's it for this episode. I will see you next time as we continue our journey into the antisocial history of biological and chemical warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast.